1: Hello and welcome to The Shift, the podcast that aims to tell the no-holds-barred truth about being a woman post-40. Created and hosted by me, writer and broadcaster, Sam Baker. What happens when one of the great comic writers of our time hits menopause? That's the conundrum that faced this week's guest, award-winning novelist Nina Stibbe, when she sat down to write her new novel. With five bestsellers under her belt, including her memoir, Love, Nina, which was turned into a hit TV series starring Helena Bonham Carter, and three novels centred around the turbulent teens and twenties of her alter ego, Lizzie Vogel, Nina decided it was time to turn her hand to middle age. In One Day I Shall Astonish the World, Nina examines the heartbreak, hilarity, and occasional hatred of a friendship that stretches from late teens to mid-fifties by way of very different love, life, and career choices. Sex suddenly becomes quite
2: funny. You know, when you're in your 20s, sex isn't very funny. It's all sorts of other things, but it's quite funny now. (laughs) Isn't it, Sam? You're not saying anything.
1: (laughs) Is sex funny, Sam? It is. Yes, it can be. It is in your book. Nina joined me from Cornwall to talk about being hit by the menopause truck, pressure to always be funny, and why her greatest midlife inspiration has come from comedy women. She also said she thinks she looks older than her mum and shared her ultimate midlife relationship saver, the sofa bed. Are you in your study? Yeah, look. It's interesting, yeah. That's a sofa bed and that's out of the window. So it's the sofa bed in case you're working so hard you can't go upstairs or downstairs or wherever the bed is?
2: It's because I was getting such terrible menopause symptoms that we had to get a bed in the study for me to escape to. I wanted somewhere big and area that, look, there's all these doors, look, like that, I can just open all that. Oh. And
1: it's all lovely and cold in here. It's so interesting because did you used to be the person who was cold? Yes,
2: until I got
1: to 55 and then
2: it makes me hate living in Cornwall and I love living in Cornwall, but I regret that we don't live in Edinburgh because you could just open the windows and the cold will come in. Oh, it does. So are you too
1: warm down there now?
2: Yeah, I'm too warm. off. Well, we're here for a bit.
1: Yeah. Did it start with boiling hot and having to move out of the marital bed? Yes.
2: My first realization that things had started I'd wake up at night feeling anxious and hot and thinking what am I going to do I can't go back into this bed it's too hot and I'd been a person who had really enjoyed sleeping a lot I'd always gone to bed early and slept right through and suddenly not sleeping very
1: well was well it was awful. So what's that four or five years ago?
2: Yeah I was quite late to menopause I think I was probably about 55 I'm 60 now Turned 60 in December, and I think I'm sort of through the worst bit, but I had a couple of years of the horrors, and it started with that sort of being very, very hot and worrying about being hot. So you're going to do an event, and you look into the oh room God, to yeah. lights and think, oh, gosh, I, I can't wear that jacket. Like, now I'm in the thinnest little thing. Yeah. Even though we're not filming, I've wanted to put on something nice. But then I can't put on a lovely, smart, woolly jumper, which would be appropriate for the weather, because I know I would just boil, even now.
1: Yeah, that is one of the benefits of living up here this time of year. Mm. A jumper is fine. It's so weird, isn't it, how it changed everything? It's like your temperature is reset forever. Yeah.
2: Well, it made me start wearing a, I don't know what you call it, a gilet, a sleeveless. I never used to be able to see the point of those. I thought it was like a sign of, you know, being horsey or something that it was sort of a badge of being a country person and my sister first started wearing a gilet and I just thought oh she just looks like one of those women in a gilet <laughs> then I got one because I thought I thought I'd found my own private reason but well, you have one of those and then I would be warm in my body but I wouldn't be overwhelmed and then i told my sister that and she said, well, why do you think I wear one? So I said, oh, is that why you said, yeah. And I sent one to my friend up in Lynn Lithgow, my friend Stella for Christmas. And I put dear Stella, happy Christmas, love from Dominic Cummings. She, She said, I will never wear that. And I said, oh, you will. And sure enough. She's worn it every day. I mean,
1: she didn't wear it for a while, but soon enough. Yeah, it came for her. Yeah. We're going to talk about Stella a bit more in a minute. How did you come to move out? Because I'm really interested by this solution to it. So many people I've spoken to, like, you know, opening all the windows and then their partner's complaining because it's freezing or like throwing the duvet off all night mm. and... So how did you reach the kind of like, I actually have to move out and move into study solution?
2: Well, I have to say, my partner has been very, very empathetic and very kind. And what he did, he let us have a really skinny duvet. And then he had a little single duvet. But then I'd get up at night and I'd trip over all the bedding. And I didn't need to move out, Sam. What I needed was to be able to. Yeah. So I don't sleep in here all the time. And I don't even leave the bed made up. It's got bedding on it, but it's folded away as a sofa. It was waking up at two in the morning, absolutely drenched, feeling awful. And then having to go back to a sort of a slightly damp, claggy, cold bed and not want to disturb him. But actually knowing that I can come in here has made me less need to. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, totally. When we have guests and somebody has to come in here, I'm a bit kind of, oh, no, I can't escape.
1: <laughs> Even if you don't need to, the fact that you can't. Yeah. Think. Yeah,
2: yeah, it's... It's not very nice. And of course, that's nowhere near the worst symptom. It's just one that kind of
1: seems huge at the time and affects other people. I mean, it can sound quite like, well, it's not that bad, but it is. And on top of everything else, was that the worst symptom for you? Or have you had loads of other stuff? For me, I wasn't thinking
2: about menopause, even though I was quite late to it. I have a sister who's a year older than me. She was one of those people who'd had a whole new life. She'd divorced and met a new partner and they were in this lovely new life and they've got a small holding, pigs and sheep. And she was really very, very happy. And I suddenly started to notice she was different. She was gloomy and it didn't occur to me that it was menopause. And I was so worried about her, I had all sorts of awful thoughts. And I remember walking the dog one day and ringing her and in tears saying, Vic, you've got to tell me what's wrong with you. Because I can't bear it. And I questioned mm. her. I thought she might be in a horrible relationship, which is an awful thing to think about this lovely mm. guy that she's now married to. And he really seemed wonderful. But I just thought, what could it be? And I sobbed as I walked the dog on the phone going, no, you've got to. T-. And she's told me she'd got these awful symptoms. And her worst symptom was this thing called hag riding. Look it up on Wikipedia. You can't wake up. You want to wake. Oh, I do know, yeah. And you have this feeling of great pressure on you. I don't know whether she always felt it. It feels like somebody's sitting on top of you. It's the night yeah.
1: terrors can manifest themselves like that, can't they? And actually
2: yeah. the word nightmare comes from that idea of having some kind of demon pressing down on you. So she was getting that And it was awful. And she was getting sweats, what they call hot flashes. I always thought they were hot flushes. But she was getting hot flushes that would start in the middle of her and sort of radiate outwards. And they Mm. made her so anxious, she thought she was going to die. And I have to tell you about this sister of mine. She's completely sensible. She's not childish and silly like me. She's incredibly mature and capable. She's the sort of person that sort of manages her own life with great flair and control. And she'll go up to a a man digging up the road and say, oh, hey, what are you doing? How long is this going to take? And really assertively question people. And she went from that to being this Mess. It was horrible to see it. And oh my God. so I was prepared then. Once I'd seen that, because the previous generation in my family and the older women in my life, and I've got lots of older women in my life, had mm-hmm. never said a word. I didn't hear a word from my mum. I didn't hear anything from my grandmothers. I had two stepmothers. I've, I've got a mother-in-law. I've got all sorts of older women in my life, and they, they just never said anything. So Yeah,
1: that's a generational shift that's kind of, I suppose, comparable between us and the next one down that kind of, we just got on with it thing.
2: My mum always wanted, and probably still does, even though she's eighty two, she wants to seem shaggable. That's, (laughs) That's her thing. I mean, it sounds like a horrible thing, but it just is. Who she is? It's always been her thing, hasn't it? It's always been her thing, you know. And she's jolly about it and funny about it. But I don't think that was consistent with saying, "Oh, I'm going through
1: the menopause," or you know. She just no. Do you think we'll ever beat that? That sense that oh well, if I admit that I'm going through the menopause, then clearly I am history on that respect, the shagability market, for want of a better way of putting it. I
2: think that will go because enough people are speaking out because of people like you doing this. I think that side of it is the trickier side because youth is so sort of highly praised and desired and women measure themselves even now in those ways. I was thinking, so what did I know about it and who did I know it from? It was certainly not my own family and my sister only a year before I was about to be at that age myself and you know and had to drag it out of her as well you know I almost thought she was being bullied because you're close aren't you we talk about Um, everything yeah I think she just felt so ashamed that she was cracking up the people that have talked about it most and most effectively in my early middle age to prepare me when I think about it it's female comedians it's Jenny Eclair, I remember hearing her talking on the radio about it way before I was going through it. And I thought, yikes, I've never heard her sound so sad and upset. And that was very interesting to hear her sounding like that. It was quite shocking. Another thing that strikes me, in 2009, Victoria Wood had a Christmas special on the BBC and it was called Victoria Wood's Midlife Christmas. Did you ever see it? God, no. I must remember that. So it's on primetime telly. BBC, Christmas, it got, I think, 12 million viewers... And it was called Her Midlife Christmas, and it was all about midlife. And one of the ongoing sketches on the show was a thing called the Midlife Olympics, where women, middle-aged women, had to do things like a reverse park a car or trim a hedge. I I can't remember what it had to (laughs) do. But it was so funny about midlife, and it was all about that. It was very, very funny, but did keep touching on these really crucial sort of, I don't know, midlife Tropes, I think now, gosh, that's really helpful because that normalised. I mean, it was the
1: tenth highest rating program of Christmas week. Victoria Woods' midlife. So interesting. Vampire. Testament, isn't it, to the power of her yeah. that they let her you know.
2: You've got onto a very interesting fact. They did let her, but they bumped it from Christmas Day to Christmas Eve without telling her. And you uh-huh. know, that really shocked her. And you have to wonder, was it just a little bit not Christmassy enough because of the- I
1: bet. Yeah, I bet they just couldn't get their heads around that subject matter on Christmas Day. It is fascinating. So were you going through this kind of thought process a bit when you were writing the new book, One Day I Will Astonish the World? Yes.
2: And the first draft of that book was... Horrific. It was so angry and so miserable. And my editor said to me, This isn't realistic. This is too much. And I went, This is fucking realistic. This is my life. Too real, probably. I had to just take a deep breath and I had to care about my readers. And actually, my job is to be poignant and funny, not poignant and brutal. There's some tough bits in there. Yeah, I'm quite tough, but there weren't many laughs the first time.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, there definitely are laughs now. Thank God. One thing I was going to ask you is that all your other books were drawn from your life to one degree or another. Hmm. So this was too, to an extent?
2: Not anywhere near as much. I mean, there are things I've borrowed from my own life, but not in the same way. I've borrowed just for shorthand. So they might drive the same car that I've driven because I've driven that car. So why not? And I've set it in the Midlands and I come from the Midlands and I know Mm. the Midlands really well, but I sort of did that because I quite like having books that aren't set in London. Yeah. It's just nice. And I'm very much a Leicester girl and Leicester have embraced me, even though I haven't lived there for 30 or 40 years, (laughs) they see me as theirs. And so it's a way of enhancing that and enriching that I
1: like that but no it's not very autobiographical and it did make it much harder to write. I mean you have got a legion haven't you of predominantly female fans probably in their 40s 50s and 60s yeah and I'm guessing that you know the nostalgia thing that you do so brilliantly is one of the things that really resonates with them so was it a bit daunting to go okay I'm going to tackle the drudge that comes after Mm. 25. It was very
2: refreshing because When I was writing the narrator of Lizzie Vogel, who is the narrator of the three novels, people got to really love her. And of course, she's young and she's curious and mischievous. It was so refreshing to write someone who was grumpy and a bit (laughs) suspicious and a bit fed up. She's just put everybody else first for a long time. I liked having her thinking quite awful things. She's not a goody-goody, and she's a little bit eccentric. The other thing is about this book, I wanted everybody in it to be ordinary. I didn't want anybody to miraculously, for no apparent reason, have a really fantastic house and loads of money and be able to just go to Italy. I just think I'm fed up of reading novels where you think, where do they get their money? You know, when yeah. you watch the telly, do you ever watch the telly and you think, how can they afford to live there? Oh, always, always. I mean, where do they get all this money from? I mean, my partner always... and I work our socks off and we live in a hovel.
1: People are always renting like the equivalent of Oslo Airport and working, you know, as a receptionist. It's
2: like, what? Yes. So I've tried to make sure that Susan is not only very ordinary, but in spite of being ordinary, she's allowed to be clever. I wanted to get that equation right because some of the cleverest people I meet are actually not desperately educated. They're just clever. One of the things I really wanted to get across was that each generation really believes That their way is the way and that the children that come along, whether it's their nieces or children or children of friends or or their pupils or whoever, maybe their colleagues, that there is this route that one, one should take, especially women. And that we mustn't think like that in the same way that we wouldn't want to be like our mothers and grandmothers, not necessarily anyway that we mustn't pressurize our young colleagues or whatever it's a certain arrogance i mean i've got two grown up kids they're both at university now and i really try hard not to overreact to their life choices because you know they don't belong to me you know i love chatting and having opinions but i would never i would never think it was my decision what my 22 year old daughter does
1: her take on things changed yours at all yes
2: very much so um some of the areas for which that is true i wouldn't even want to discuss now because Mm. they're very big things too big for now but yeah well i live in cornwall and work from home and have done for 10 years and so i don't mix with young people in the workplace so I'm very grateful to my children and their friends because I've been able to see certain evolutions that have been very eye-opening and, and fascinating and actually quite
1: wonderful. I mean, I think that kind of change in perspective, it does really come across in the book, that kind of, that shifting perspective as, as the younger characters move to the fore. a bit. I think it's really interesting that the first draft was about the marriage and then the next draft, it became about the friendship because. Yeah, that is more interesting.
2: I do like books about marriage and, you know, but the friendship is very fascinating, I think. And I don't know whether you felt this, but people that have read it are a bit alarmed about the friendship at times. They're a bit cross. My American publisher said
1: she really didn't like Norma because she felt she wasn't a good enough friend. Yeah. So interesting, because what I've written down is that I really like the way you tackle that imbalance in female yeah. friendships. And I think that I think we all had those friends, especially as teenagers, where you're more of a handmaiden than a friend, really. Yeah,
2: you're either the lover or the beloved. Yeah, That's kind of how it works yeah. in friendships, and especially friends that you made when you were young, or very young adult, people you met in your teens, it's never equal. The friendship did fascinate me in that respect. And I remember I I've got loads of siblings and half siblings. So I grew up with four very close siblings. You know, we were only a few years apart in age, all of us. So I was very used to being able to have arguments and it still be all right afterwards. So I've always been very forgiving. So a friend could be awful to me in the same way that my brother would or my sister would, and I'd be pals with them again. It almost has never bothered me. I remember thinking as a child and and a teenager that friendship was... Unrealistic in books. The friends were always so there for each other and they'd sacrifice themselves and they would tell the truth and they'd be terribly helpful and kind. And I just think, God, I, you know, I haven't got a friend like that. They're all awful. Yeah. But, you know, I like them, but I wouldn't trust yeah. them. You wouldn't yeah. trust your best friend, crikey. Yeah. Um, but then I read Edna O'Brien, The Country Girls. And I thought, ah, this is a real friendship. I remember I must have been about, I don't know, 18 or
1: 19 when I read it. And I was just, I just said, yes, this is so real. Yeah, I mean, quite often. Uh, well, not quite often. All the time, really. Female friendship is lionized, isn't it? It's like oh God, held yes. up as this Stopping thing in each other's sick beds, and yeah, and you start to feel like a bit of a failure if you haven't got a girl gang. Exactly. Sam, Even at that's... fifty-five.
2: Yes, yeah. that's. So true. I mean, my best friend Stella. You know, she's an absolute nightmare. She's a terrible friend. She really is. She's my best <laughs> friend, but she's terrible. Well, you've been friends for what thirty odd years. We met at 35. uni. Or Polly, Polytechnic. We met at Polytechnic, so we've been friends ever since. But she now lives up near Edinburgh, where you are, and I live here, so we are a long, long way away. But, yeah, we just are best friends. We've kind of clung on, even though she doesn't really like my other friends, I don't really like her other friends, you know, (laughs) who are all listening to this podcast. If if any of my friends turn up and she's at my house, she doesn't go, hello, hello. She's like, oh, God. And she sort of just goes (laughs) off. Terrible. And her friends, I just like I think, oh, we should just fall out with that woman. She's always so yeah, we're great friends, but we're yeah, we're awful friends as well.
1: But that long term thing, I mean, that length of time in a, a romantic relationship, for want of a better way to put it, you'd really have been through some ups and downs, yeah. even if you're still you know, and still together. Be celebrated.
2: So. Because I've been with my partner for a long time. I mean, we met very, very young, you know, before university. But we did have quite a long break. We split up for probably about 10 years, but we did get back together again. And people are always going on about that. Oh, you've been together with him so long. Oh, it's so romantic. But they never say, you know, you and Stella have soldiered on all this time. And it's wonderful friendship doesn't get the celebration it deserves, I think. Although my husband and I say to our kids, look after your friends. You know, they are the important ones. You know, you will have these romances, but your friends look after them as well. I've noticed as well that people will put their family first so mm. over the years of being a parent I might say to one of my son's friends I text the mum and say we're doing this wonderful thing we're going to the theatre or we're going surfing or we're doing something amazing you know would so and so like to come and they'll say no his nan's coming round and I think well his nan lives down the road this is a wonderful <laughs> opportunity." and just in order to eat Sunday lunch with his nan you're, which he
1: does every week he yeah. does
2: every week he can do it on Monday he can go and have egg on toast on Monday I mean, family's great, but friends, I think, need cherishing and
1: looking after. Totally. Have you got more or less confident as you've got older, do you think?
2: Probably more. I mean, I feel slightly that I peaked at the age of nine and so I've stayed as quite a childish, childlike person. I, that's part of why I don't want to interview anyone, because I don't feel like the grown-up in the room. Even though I'm now 60, I still feel like the child. And I don't entirely trust myself that I might say something wrong out of nerves or just trying to be funny. You know, trying to be funny is a thing, and, and it can go wrong. So I have gotten more confident in that I've learned to calm down and that I don't have to have everyone cracking up the whole time i don't have to make silly jokes the whole time and that's really nice but i did have that awful time in my mid late 50s where i felt terrified if the doorbell rang so yeah that's gone but yeah i do feel more confident and i quite like being older i i enjoy it and i i would never want to look younger or do anything to make myself look younger literally i, I don't think i could be bothered i know that other people do and i that's fine too you know, when you see someone who's putting mm. a huge amount of effort and they look amazing, great, but that's just really not me. I like being older. It's nice. It's good. But I look older than my mum, which is weird because she really minds. She wants to be young, and so she's terribly fit and does swimming and running and cycling and Pilates all the time and has her hair dyed
1: and all sorts of things. Oh, wow. And she's, what, 80? She's 82. 82. God. So is she the um, inspiration for Roy and is Wim Hof?
2: No, I I wanted Roy, Roy being the husband in this book I've just written, to have something going on that was annoying for Susan. And actually, my husband does quite like Wim Hof. I have borrowed that from real life. He's not obsessed with him, but he does do cold water swimming because we live in Cornwall, so it's easy to do it.
1: Yeah, And he hasn't dragged you into that. No. I mean, I do go into the water a lot
2: and I do snigger about poor old Wim Hof, which is ridiculously yeah. hard, but I'm nine years old, so what do you expect? Yeah. But I'm going to have to be really careful to make sure when people ask me if the book is autobiographical to say no, just straightforwardly, no, it's not because it would be unfair if people thought that Roy was my real husband. This is the first time it's been difficult to talk about a book, spoilers-wise, because there's lots of things I want Mm. to say to you that would have us rolling in the aisles and you'd finish the podcast going, oh, well, that went well. Um, But we can't because it would spoil the book. But there are some moments that were very enjoyable to write, (laughs) very (laughs)
1: naughty and funny and... Yeah. Did you find the sex easier? Because you don't like writing sex scenes, do you? I
2: really hate writing sex scenes, but yeah, I, I really enjoyed it this time. I loved it when Roy comes at Susan to look at, look at her vagina with a head torch on. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's a spoiler, is it? It's just a throwaway, no, no. a throwaway line. Sex suddenly becomes quite funny. You know, when you're in your 20s, sex isn't very funny. It's all sorts of other things, but it's quite funny now isn't it sam you're
1: not saying anything is sex funny it is yes it can be it is in your book it is very funny (laughs) the reason i'm not saying anything is because there's something i really want to say but it would be a spoiler so i can't Yeah. Well,
2: I think you're asking, did I really do those things in a certain chapter? And the answer is no, I didn't. But doing <laughs> research was hilarious because now it's all over my internet history that I have searched for all sorts of weird things. <laughs> and my husband tells me I could have done it by hiding my identity. I could have done it anonymously, but I
1: didn't. Yeah. You could have opened an incognito window at the very yeah, least. I didn't or you could do have that. Done.
2: So now I get all sorts of adverts for all sorts of funny things. Things and dildos
1: and God knows what, which so is fine. Any, anybody who reads the book, after you've read the book, you'll know what Nina's internet search history is like. Yeah. like <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah, no, I really went for it with this book. I think it's very satisfying, and I think even though I'm sort of having a bit of a laugh about sex things, I'm not knocking it, am I? I'm not being prudish. No. I am Are actually you- very prudish as a person. I'm very prudish. Are you still? It? I don't know why I am. I think it's having a very sex-positive mother. Growing up with a sex-positive mother in the 70s has made me incredibly prudish and a bit triggery. I've seen too much exploitative sex with my mother involved to make me entirely happy with any kind of romance at all. I'm like, (laughs) oh, they've fallen in love. Oh, shit, they're going to have to have sex. So writing sex has always been a huge problem for me, but not with this one because I'm happily now in my older age and it's cool. It's
1: great. Okay, I'm going to ask you the questions that I always ask at the end <laughs> What's your emotional age? Nine. Well, maybe 11, actually. I've matured a bit. 11.
2: My home life was quite traumatic. We went from being quite well off and stable to being, you know, in deepest poverty. My mum was then very much an alcoholic and a single mum, and things got really quite tricky. It was bearable because I had all these siblings and we somehow miraculously laughed our way through it. But I think that's why my sister's so brilliant and grown up. She took on the role of kind of being the adult. I think that. There is a, a concept about freezing at a certain age and it's usually to do with trauma. And we were very worried all the time and we had the electricity cut off. And it doesn't sound like much, but oh it was it was
1: horrible. And it is when you're little. That's yeah. when it's pretty little. Yeah. If you could only recommend one book, what would it be? Only one book? Well, I would probably
2: say Ducks Newburyport Report by Lucy Ellman because it's the standout novel for me for many years. Yeah. What advice would you give younger women? The advice I would give is use your own voice in everything you do. You're good enough and you're probably much better than you realise at everything. And being yourself, using your own voice and just being natural is better anyway because it's easier. Mm. Just being you is is great and it's just so relaxing.
1: I mean, you know better than me because you've got a 22-year-old daughter, but I really hope that younger women to already have that sense that they don't have to pretend to be something that they're not in a way that I certainly did feel I had to at their age. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: I do think young women do still worry far more than is healthy. And I do spend a lot of time saying, please don't worry about that, not just to Eva, but to her friends as well. If you just knew how brilliant and perfect and glorious you were and and you will look back at this time and it'll be the best time of your life. Than you've spent today worrying about that. A thing just to say that is a bit of a non-sequitur, but I really wanted to say this, Sam. From the age of 50, I stopped being a person who had to work in an office. I was able to work, well, write full-time, uh, you know. To...
1: Sorry, I just got attacked by the cat. Hang <laughs> on a minute, I'm just... I feel you were about to say, don't mention that. No, no. He just I just got claws in my back. Sorry. Come on. Obviously saying it's time to end this. He's like, let me out.
2: Yeah. I wanted to say that when I was about 50 and I got this book contract and I was able to work full time as a writer because I very quickly had this second book out, I didn't have a job to go to where I had to sort of get dressed and leave the house and go and mingle with other people. And that had a huge effect on my menopause because I think I had it easy. So a lot of my friends who were going through the same thing at the same time, roughly, my sister was a nurse. So she had to go out and do health visits whilst going through all that. Mm-hmm. You know, I do want to say that because I can't complain, you know, it made <laughs> it a lot yeah. easier. Yes, I've had a few moments of going on stage thinking, ah, but on the whole, I've been able to manage things at home and sort of really look after myself. And it's that's made it really, really much easier. Yeah. What's your superpower? It used to be that I could remember everything. I'd remember your phone number, <clears throat> your birthday, the name of your cat. My memory used to be such that when I met people, they'd be completely freaked out because I'd say, How's Patch? And they go, well, Who's Patch? And I go, Your mum's dog. They go, Oh, <laughs> yeah. And they'd be a bit kind of spooked, but that's kind of gone. So I'm in this new landscape of not trusting myself, and it's actually quite horrible that I don't remember things I've got to do and I don't remember things, you know. Whereas before, five years ago, I would have remembered everything about you. So my superpower is waning, it's on the way. Oh no, is it being replaced with another one? Yeah, I think I'm getting quite jolly. (laughs) I'm getting quite, that I don't really worry about anything. That's quite
1: nice. You worry a bit less than you used to. Yeah,
2: probably because I can't remember anything.
1: Yeah. <laughs> can't remember what you should be worrying about. Yeah. Um, last one. How many fucks do you give? Mm, a few, actually. Whenever I sort of don't give a fuck,
2: I slightly regret it later because I've done it slightly wrong. Mm. That's not naturally my, my thing. As I say, I'm a micro responder. So I do want to kind of on the whole have everyone going, isn't she lovely? Yeah. <laughs> Um, Thank you so much, Nina. It's no, well, been... thanks for having me on. And I came on trying to be really serious because it's a serious subject, but we've actually had quite a nice, lovely chat. Yeah, and you don't want to be too
1: serious. Wouldn't be you. True. <laughs> Thank you for listening. You can hear a new episode of The Shift each Tuesday wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please do rate, review and follow because it really does help other people find us. And if you'd like to support the shift further, please consider becoming a member of our community. Find out more at study.media forward slash the shift.
0: Hold up.